Good morning.、Uh, my name is Alan. I'm here today with my wife Yvonne and my son Isaac. The Bible reading this morning is Revelation chapter five, verse one to fourteen. It is found on、uh, page eight hundred sixty-three of the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him. Who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, "Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?" But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, "Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals." Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne, and when He had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they and they sang a new song, saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and the language and the people and the nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain." To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, "To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power for ever and ever." The four living creatures said. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, friends, this morning I want to、uh, chat to you about how to waste your time.、Uh, I don't know if anyone here likes wasting their time. I don't like、uh, doing things that waste my time. In fact, I don't know anyone who likes doing things that are completely and absolutely and utterly. A useless waste of time, but it happens, doesn't it? I wonder if you look back over your last week, how many moments you sort of felt, if I could just reclaim that time for, for something else, 
Well, according to a variety of surveys across the world, uh, there are four things that absolutely waste your time. Number four, when you are on the phone for four hours or more trying to sort out your banking or change a flight and then the phone cuts out. Does anyone love that? That's a classic time waster. Number three, when you are queuing up for something only to get to the very front of the queue and be told, oh, we're sold out. Does anyone love that? No. Number two, when you're meant to be meeting someone or a tradie is meant to come to your house and you stay home all day and they don't come. A classic time waster. Well, number one, this is the one that huge numbers of people in the world think is a classic time waster. I wonder if you can guess it. A completely and utterly useless thing to do with your time according to billions of people across the world. Can you guess it? Here it is. Nope. Going to church to worship Jesus. Going to church to worship Jesus. From the point of view of billions in the world, what you are doing right now is a complete and absolute and utter waste of time. Here you are investing your time and your energy and your finances into, according to many, fairy tales, falsehoods and fabrications. Just think of all the things you could be doing with the two hours that you've invested in this gathering this morning. The options are endless. And according to billions, here you are, wasting your time, investing in worshipping Jesus. Is this really worth your time? Of course, there, there is one more thing that is an even greater waster of time than this. I wonder if you can guess what that is. Well, that's, that's sitting alone and praying. I mean, at least when you come to church, you get to see people and find some community. You might even find a friend. <clears throat> you might find a marriage partner. You know, at, at least there could be some side benefits to this. But sitting alone and praying... Surely, surely, that is a time waster. As one of my friends said, praying to the invisible man in the sky. Why on earth would you do that? So is this, what you are doing here, really worth your time? Well, Let's see what Revelation 5 and 6 have to say about that. Uh, Grab your Bible, have it open. Much better to have a Bible open on your lap. And join me back in the throne room of heaven. Uh, In chapter 4, we saw John's vision of a throne surrounded by the people of God. 
We saw a rainbow of mercy there on that throne. We saw the one who was being worshipped. We saw the one who was worthy to receive glory and honour and power, for he created all things and has his, in his hands all things. But that was not the end of the story. In chapter 4, we had the details of all that was happening around the throne. But in chapter 5, we get to focus squarely on the throne and who is there on that throne and what that person is doing. So look with me at verse 1, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw, John says, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, the first century readers of Revelation would have known immediately the significance of that scroll that God is holding in his right hand. Now, scrolls were legal documents like a will or a, a testament that expressed the will or even the demands of the one who wrote it and sealed it. And that will or those demands or plans could only be carried out by the one who sealed that scroll or by another who was appointed as worthy to do so. So an emperor might write out a scroll of all the battle plans that were to take place and send it to a commander out in the field with his will and his plans for that battle. And the commander, as the one designated as worthy, was the only one who could break the seals, open the scroll and complete the plans. And so here is God sitting on the throne, holding his will, holding his plans for all history. There they are, sealed with a divinely perfect number of seals. And verse 2, as we expect, John sees a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who has the power and authority to carry out the plans of God? Who can step forward and carry out the will of God? Who is worthy to do such a thing? It's going to have to be someone incredible. This is God's plan sealed in a scroll, written on both sides. It's going to have to be someone almighty. But the news is not good, is it? Look at verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth could open the scroll, or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. I tell you, if that's where the story ended, this would be an absolutely useless thing to be doing on a Sunday morning. But that's not where the story ends. John's outpouring of grief is entirely appropriate. If no one is worthy to carry out God's plans, then God's plans and power in the world is useless. And perhaps his grief comes out of fear that God, who looks so powerful, doesn't actually have control of things for good. Now, if God is not powerful enough to have his will executed, we should all weep and give up. But no such thing is the case. Look at verse 5. It says there, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Friends, there is one worthy. And the language used here in verse 5 indicates that he is the one the whole Bible has been focused on. He is the one the whole of history has been waiting for. At the start of the Bible, in Genesis 49, God promises that a lion of Judah would come to rule the nations. In the middle of the Bible, in Isaiah 11, God promises that one from the root of David, a son of David, will come to bring justice and judgment and peace upon the world. And now, here at the end of the Bible, we hear literally, see triumphant is the lion of judah the root of david and the language draws our focus here not to some expectation of a grand battle that this one is going to win in the future but rather this that this lion this root is already triumphant he is already victorious the absolute nature of the language here indicates that the main battle has already taken place and there is no doubt that this triumphant one has won, is winning and will win in the end and so he is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. And so John is called to behold this triumphant lion. So he looks around. He's looking for the mighty conqueror. He's looking for a mighty a lion who has triumphed over everything. Where is this worthy root of David? And he looks around and verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into all the earth. It's intriguing in the extreme, isn't it? But you know who you're looking at there in verse 16. There is a lamb with all the marks of slaughter, blood, and injuries, but he's standing. He is risen. And he is at the centre of the throne in power and majesty and encircled by all of those who are in heaven. He has seven horns symbolising perfect power. He has the sevenfold eyes symbolising the sevenfold complete spirit of God with whom he works in union. Friends, this is Jesus who Colossians chapter 2.15 says has triumphed over every power and over every authority at the cross. This is Jesus who himself says in Matthew 28 verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the lion, royal, dignified, ruling, powerful, but he's also the lamb. Quiet, submissive. Humble, slain. And verse 9 and 10 say, He is the one worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because he was slain. And he was slain in order to, bring, to purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Indeed, what we're seeing here is that Jesus' death is the greatest victory, the greatest triumph the world has ever seen. We're seeing the paradox that Jesus conquered 
by getting killed. It is the greatest paradox in the world that the almighty king overcame all his enemies and as his enemies seemingly overcame him and thought they had won, he was winning. That, that he tricked God's chosen people, Satan, into murdering their own deliverer. But Jesus, who was dead, rose from the dead for the salvation of the world. And what we see here in verse 5 and 6 is the gospel that Jesus died for you, that Jesus in his blood purchased you back, redeemed you for God, brought about your forgiveness. And what we see and hear again and again in the gospel is that this is the very greatest work of God and it was for you. And now, having already completed the greatest work of God, having been triumphant, how much more is this one this Jesus, worthy to open the scroll and to execute the rest of God's plans for all of history with authority. So crucified and dead and buried and raised, now the Lion of God, the Lamb that was slain, takes the reins of history, and that's what we see in Revelation. That Jesus is in charge of every moment of history, your history, your now, your future, as he takes that scroll and executed. He is king. He is Lord. He is God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has taken that scroll and he has your destiny in his hands. He controls the destiny of every individual on the planet. And that is just what we see in chapter 6. Indeed, I want to leave some of chapter 6 for our growth groups to nut out. But look with me from verse 1 in chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Here is the Lamb of God executing the will of God, bringing judgment even into the world in this very hour. But just notice there in verse 2 where the authority of that horse, that, that mode of judgment that we see comes from, it's been given, given by Jesus. And that's what we see all the way through chapter 6. In verse 4, the authority of the fiery red horse is given to that horse by Jesus. In verse 8, the authority of the pale, chlorine-coloured horse is authority given by Jesus. And Jesus remains in control until the very end, when the final day of God's judgment takes place. Yeah, here in Revelation chapter 6, we actually get to the very end of the story of all things. At the very end of chapter 6, uh, from verse 12, uh, it says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake, the sun turned black, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. And then verse 15, then the kings, sorry, verse 14, that the heavens receded like a scroll, being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves, and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? 
Now, Revelation doesn't sort of slowly reveal what's going to happen before the end. Revelation is going to go in loops. It's going to drive us all slightly mad. But here in chapter 5 and chapter 6, you're seeing everything. Right now, everything is under the control of the Lord Jesus. And everything will be under the control of the Lord Jesus until the final day of God's wrath comes, when even that will be under the control of the Lord Jesus. Are we convinced of that? Are we certain that this is not all in the future? Well, look with me at verse 9 in chapter 6. It says that when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Here are people crying out like you and me, who have been killed for their faith who are with the Lord even now, who are looking upon the earth saying, how much longer will people die like we died for trusting you? And Jesus says then, or verse 11 tells us then, each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. There's nothing easy about being a Christian in these days. But what's described here are these days. This time, as we await the return of Jesus, this is not some future event, this is now. And this is Jesus, and he's taken control of and is in control of history. Your every breath, your every movement, all that goes on sits under his hands. So what is the right response to that? Well, the response of all those who see this up close begins back in chapter 5 at verse 7. All those who are up close who see this like John does, chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Verse 9, they sang a new song. Then verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped incredible isn't it how the praise of the lamb the praise of the lion the praise of Jesus extends outward it started with the inner circles of the living creatures and elders it extends to the angels and indeed prophetically to all the earth as Philippians chapter 2 tells us the entire universe is here and having been given insight into the power and wisdom and strength and wealth and honor and glory of Jesus they worship Jesus 
For when they see Jesus for who he really is, when they see Jesus for what he is really doing, they worship Jesus. They lay down everything before Jesus. So, is this, is this what you are doing here this morning? Is this really worth your time? Nah. Given who's in control of history, it'd be much better to be at the beach, wouldn't it? Is this really worth your time? I mean, nah. Given who's really triumphant in power, it'd be a much better idea to be taking your kids to a birthday party this morning, wouldn't it? Is this really worth your time? Friends, the temptation to think otherwise is driven by the secular air we breathe. Secularism doesn't just deny God's existence. It tries to normalise the non-existence of the spiritual world. Such that in our world, talking openly about God, even talking to God, feels increasingly odd. And just being here makes you feel like you're out of step with a busy, wealthy world, the world we live in, that gets along just fine, it looks like, by ignoring everything we're doing here and ignoring the one who we worship. And it's in those moments where you feel that, when you feel the weight of secularism, when you feel the weight of the denial of the spiritual and the denial of Jesus, when you feel that, that you need to remember the existence of God's power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and do not rely upon your feelings. What's here in Revelation 5 and 6 is objective fact. So is this really worth your time? What a ridiculous question when you've seen this picture. Verse 13, when anything on earth sees Jesus, clearly the right response is worship. And when you see the world clearly, when you see the lion and the lamb and the triumph and the power, why would you not get yourself here ready to worship at every available opportunity? A gathering with others to praise the Lord as we hear his word and sing his praises is the most sensible thing that anyone in the world can do. Of course, our worship of Jesus ought to be so much bigger than singing songs, even new songs like here in Revelation 5. Our worship of Jesus ought to be so much bigger than gathering here, even gathering week by week. Our worship of Jesus, Romans 12 reminds us, is all that we do. We, we love and serve and honour Jesus in life. And as we do that, that is our true and proper worship. But experience tells me that the people who don't gather... are rarely living a life of worship outside the church. Sure, you know, you don't have to gather to be a Christian. But Christians gather because spending time worshipping Jesus is spending time in the best way. And so what of praying? Well, I wonder if you noticed verse 8. It's remarkable. I'll read from verse 7 in chapter 5. Jesus went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, 
which are the prayers of God's people. You see, as incense burns and rises up with a sweet smell, so the prayers of God's people ascend with sweetness into the presence of Christ. Even your prayers are here in the throne room of God. There they are. There they're heard. They are part of what is happening in the throne room as the scrolls are open and far from being prayer being a useless waste of time, your prayers are being low, laid before the throne of the one who controls history and he is listening. And when you pray, you are acknowledging where the world is really heading and who is really in charge. Jesus is in control of history, your history. He's in control of destiny, your destiny. So why would you not pray? Well, friends, let's finish here. There are lots of ways to waste your time. But let me assure you that paying attention to and listening to and spending time praying to or spending time worshipping Jesus is not one of them. He is the triumphant lamb who was slain. He is in charge and he wins and he is worthy of every moment of your time. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we pray that this day you may help us to see clearly what is going on in the throne room of heaven who is in charge of this world. Lord God, we pray that this day we may order our lives around what is objectively true. Help us to live constantly in prayerful worship of you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.